Okay, so we're live now, and I'm here with my, my good friend Gilbert. And today we're going to discuss a quite controversial issue, actually, the language wars. Or, or not so much, you know, have a debate, but go through the history, if that's like what you want to do. I think the history is important. Um, I think certainly looking at the merits of both sides, the history is very important. But uh, we can, we can yeah. work our way through it. Well, the first thing I'd like to talk about is I think the um, descriptivist-prescriptivist dichotomy isn't really fair. You know, because there's several variations of uh, each each of those sides. Like, uh, I don't even think descriptivist is a good word to oppose that with. Because when you say descriptivist, all I understand like by parsing that is that it's just a professionally trained linguist. You know, I, I, I think to actually be an effective descriptivist, yes, you, you do need to, to be a, 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 a linguistics researcher um, because you, you, you're basically describing language as it's used. Yeah. And uh, you're, you're saying what is the most common forms of use and the, the most acceptable and the best understood. I think uh, it's, um, all, it's all empirical. I think we actually um, had a comment thing about this yeah. um, where you were mentioning that descriptivism comes from an entirely different uh, value system or like prescriptivism is a value system. And, you know, it's, it's artistic or uh, not artistic, but uh, rhetorical judgments, various stylistic choices that have nothing to do with science. Whereas yeah. a linguist is a, you know, a scientist, so to speak. And that's why I don't think that dichotomy really, really works because there's, there's various um, levels of pres uh, prescriptivism, right? Like you have the the purists, and I don't tend to get along with the purists very much. I know <laughs> we've had our, our our debates with those in in our uh, our group on Facebook, the English Language Police Two, which we won't get into English Language Police One <laughs> or why that everybody fled there. But even myself as a uh, somewhat mild prescriptivist i used to be a lot worse when i was younger but even like with myself i see a lot of things that they'll bring up that are i'm just like oh that doesn't matter you know mm. like um i guess you would you would say that descriptivism is if we're gonna like boil it down to essentials is descriptivists as you said describe how how the language is used and oftentimes it's not used according to how you would strictly say standard English should be. And a, a prescriptivist says that um, there, there should be, you know, a standard. And like I said, descriptivism is actually more difficult to define than uh, descriptivism. Well, I think, uh, I, I think it's not just a question of looking at usage and frequency. Um, descriptivists also study uh, acceptability. Yeah. Um, particularly in sociolinguistics. So I think that, you know, that the, uh, there is a, an issue in science as to whether there are rules or laws at all um, and what that, what that adds. I mean, if you've, if you've, you know, formed a theory, developed hypotheses from it, proved those hypotheses to be true yeah. and established the theory, to then say it's a law of physics or law of science is not adding anything at all. Um, 
And, you know, that language was introduced um, during the scientific revolution where, you know, if these were laws of nature at all, they were laws that came from God. Um, yeah. But saying something's a law when you've already established a regularity and something that's repeatable and if you've done a causal experiment, something you can successfully manipulate in the future, talking about laws doesn't add anything at all. And I think it's the same with descriptivism. If you can actually show a regularity in the language, um, which is what most of our standards are based on. Yeah. Um, you don't have to say there's a rule anymore. Um, you just say this is this is the this is how English is commonly across the board across different dialects is written and spoken. And then on top of that, what descriptivists can do are acceptability studies. So if you've got variations in usage. Um, you can actually empirically study which ones are found to be acceptable and which ones aren't. And I think that's where the prescriptivists tend to start falling out because yeah. they won't accept um, that um, we should go with what people do and what people say. But acceptability studies, particularly, let's say, if your sample were English teachers, journalists, um, you know, lawyers, people drafting legislation, you know, people who actually have to write good English every day. I think if that's your, your sample for an acceptability study, it is very hard to um, say that that empirical study can't override what someone says as a rule. And I think the real difficulty with prescriptivism is there is no logical basis yes. for its rule. And, you know, this is where the history comes in. We, you know, people like David Crystal have looked in detail, as others have, on how standards came in in a very short period, really between sort of 1750 and 1780, and how shaky they were. Yeah. And um, from the outset, people were picking up. And I think this is the difficulty is that, you know, the classic ones like split infinitives, ending sentences <laughs> with prepositions. Um, I was actually going to have a. But those yeah, those so called rules were rubbished immediately. And I think what's difficult is that. There was such a demand for standards um, that those have got cast in stone, even though they're discredited almost from the outset. Um, and as far as I can see from the Facebook group, um, particularly in American grade school education, yeah. um, that these things are taught uncritically and without question. And, and when, you know, finally uh, a freshman composition course, first year composition course like at Rutgers, for example, starts looking critically prescriptivism and, and, and standards. Um, you get some people getting very upset at the very idea that a critical approach can be taken to to what are just proposed rules at the end of the day. Um, so I think I think there is a basis and that a descriptivist will try and stick to evidence and prescriptivists just pull things out of the air. Yeah. Um, so, uh, you know, Bishop Louth, who gets blamed for law, <laughs> oh, too much. Yeah. I think what he can be blamed for is his writing style was such that when people came to start um, commercializing his work in, in much simpler formats, um, he, he wrote in such a way that um, it almost invited people to go oversimplifying him. But ending with a preposition, yeah, he said is, you know, placing the preposition, I'm, I'm reading out of David Crystal's stories of English here, yeah. the placing of the preposition before the relative is more graceful as well as more perspicuous and agrees much better with the Solomon elevated style. Yeah. 
We had a similar comment on the group recently from Dave Forber on the difference between fewer and less, which again was formalized at about the same time. And it is just simply personal opinion. And I think... Well, so a, a lot of it's based on, on Latin yeah. syntax, which His is understandable. Was. I mean, what's interesting, there was a grammarian in Newcastle, a female grammarian at the same time as Louth, and she and others said it shouldn't be based on Latin. So, yes, it is based on Latin. Yeah. Um, but that's a major mistake because English is a Germanic language. Yeah, it's uninflected. Um, and, well, English so is inflected. To make English conform. And again, in the 19th century, <laughs> philologists like Grimm, um, you know, they, and, and others, they just rubbished what Louth and others were saying. They said, it's ba you know, this is based on a misunderstanding of um, how low German languages like Danish work. Would, would you say that prescriptivism started with Louth or at least the misapprehension of Louth? Because b before that, as you know, you had yeah. like um, in Old English, there was just Elfric and the yeah. quote-unquote like mean, the, West, yeah. the, West Saxon yeah, the big, thing. The, yeah, sorry to interrupt. The big no. grammarians since classical times, I think what you see historically, and I, I was a history major originally, is that what's happening around Louth is that there's – you've got the rise of the middle classes. You've got the rise of an entrepreneurial class. The professional classes are expanding away from law and the church and medicine, um, which had traditionally worked in Latin. Yeah. Um, so you've got a number of things converging. You've got a, a, finally a move away from Latin. So Newton wrote in Latin. Um, much of the major um, works of the scientific revolution were written in Latin, and therefore the issue of standardization was really a one of standardization of Latin. Um, and Newton and others could quite happily correspond in, in Latin. So I think you've got the rise of uh, secular, of um, national languages. That's alongside the rise of nationalism at the same time. Yes, I would you've definitely agree. You've got the rise of middle classes. So, I mean, th this isn't a linguistic phenomenon at all. It's a social one. And I think what you've got um, in the second half of the 18th century is a demand from the middle classes and the upper classes too in separating themselves away from their regional cultures. Yes. So, you know, as an example, if you, I was just searching for something on the old boundary between Northumberland and Durham, um, because it's quite a strange boundary. It's almost like they had to invent a water course that didn't exist. <laughs> and uh, anyway, what showed up was um, some old um, legal records from the, the, the 16th century. And, you know, these were official documents. They, they you know, and then there were pieces that were written by local landowners, quite um, well-off people. And there's just loads of Northumbrian dialect in there. Yeah. Um, so it was not an issue until the 18th century and the rise of polite society. Um, so I think, you know, historically, nothing ever happens typically for just a single yeah. cause. You've got a convergence of things coming together. And it's not just that you've got the rise of the middle classes, that you've got the rise of polite urban society. You've got assembly rooms that people are gathering much more. Um, and people were wanting to drop um, regional differences in speech, or let, let's say a certain part of English society. Um, and that, that carried over into the States, particularly after the Civil War. Um, there was a big uprise then, as far as I've seen, in people oh. wanting to improve their yeah. language. Um, particularly amongst former slaves, for example, it was you know it was, it was part of them wanting to establish their status in American society. Um, 
I, I agree with everything you said. I wouldn't, however, say that there hadn't been a debate, so to speak, about oh, um, no, I agree. Yeah. Um, these things up until the the 1920s or so. And I cannot pronounce his last name, but uh, Ferdinand, you know, um, I think it's Saucer, maybe. Oh, when, just when, yeah, yeah, yeah. When he started the uh, structural linguist, that that uh, caused a a conflict between the humanities and ling- linguists, and it wasn't really till I'd say the like late forties or fifties when that really kind of exploded. But it's it's really ironic because people who should be good at communicating with each other are basically just misunderstanding each other. For a very long time. Yeah. Well, I think what linguistics did is it changed the basis for the debate. Um, so again, I'm I'm just looking at uh, David Crystal's The Stories of English, yeah. and very um, good book, by the way. Yeah. So one of the, uh, I mean, one of the, the the most successful grammars was Murray's, who was a New York lawyer. Oh, Lindley Murray. Yeah. To, to York <laughs> in, Eng- in England, Lindley Murray and Thomas de Quincey. You know, David Crystal describes grudgingly acknowledged Murray's supremacy. Um even though he says this book full of atrocious blunders, some of which with little systematic learning were exposed in the work of the, the late Mr. Hazlitt. Yes. Um, so I, I think from the outset, I think what you see on both sides is the need for standardization. Um, so we have that with... Um, well, Johnson's Dictionary is obviously yep. the, the big, yep. um, the so big the turning point. So support for... Um, Projects. I'm just looking something else marked. Yes. So, um, yeah, Lord Chesterfield, his support of Johnson's dictionary, he says, I cannot help thinking it is a sort of disgrace to our nation that hitherto we have had no such standard of our language. The time for discrimination seems to be to be now come, which is interesting. We wouldn't yeah. say that today. Uh, <laughs> to- toleration, adoption and naturalization have run their lens. Good order and authority are now necessary. So, I think there's always been a fundamental difference between those who say there has to be a standard and it's very closely associated with nationalism. So, you know, if you look at German and Italian, um, those standards are are certainly in Italy based on the winners in a way, um, because Italy was was unified from the north and it's very much um, Tuscan Italian that began the standard. Germany is more interesting because it was Prussia that unified Germany, um, but it was the, the, the high German Hochdeutsche that actually became established as the, the basis of the language. Um, but then the Prussians had, you know, eventually had lands from one end of Germany to the other. So it's hard to say what Prussian German would be. If it's <laughs> not necessarily Pomeranian German yeah. from the East. So, um, you know, I think if you look at the, the historical context, it is about building nations um it is about uniformity and it is about um the middle classes and upper classes distinguishing themselves um from the rabble as it were yes um well there's there's a lot of um a lot of moral coding that goes into yeah. uh, prescriptivism because er- early on with the exception of of louth because I, I think louth was mostly like syntactic stuff mm-hmm. but um especially with uh, Johnson's dictionary, there's a lot of yeah. uh, morality involved yeah. in like, in all of these decisions. Like we're, we're going to exclude all the vulgar words. In fact, there's yeah. a, uh, 
a really good anecdote where um, Johnson was, well, you know, you know who John, Johnson was a great speaker, but uh, he was walking around and uh, some like high class lady ran into him and said, I noticed that you didn't include some, some cuss word in his dictionary. And he says, well, I know madam that you would have been the first person to look for it. <laughs> so, but with Johnson, everything is, he wasn't, I don't believe is like, uh, well, when I think of prescript, uh, prescriptivism, I think of like Fowler and of, of course, all of the, you know, Eric, Eric Partridge, all of those people that I'm sure yeah. you're familiar with. I don't think specifically you didn't really get into that kind of like over analysis of the language until the 1920s. I think it was like uh, 1926 when Fowler wrote modern English usage. It is. And I think it was interesting. <laughs> I shared something recently on um, will and shall and wouldn't should in the Facebook group. Um, yeah. You know, Fowler goes through five possible rules. And I think that's the contrast with the grammarians of the 18th century who were establishing science, um, standards is, yeah. is that they they were providing polite society with what it wanted, which was clear-cut rules, um, without too much regard to, for their quality of veracity. Whereas his Fowler actually goes through, well, here are the possibilities, and in some ways leaves the reader to make their own mind up. Yes, um, with a lot of his entries. He's yeah. not... Yeah. One of the great misconceptions about Fowler yeah. is that he's the mm -hmm. king prescriptivist, you know, like he's no, no, he's not. He's, he's actually very uh, liberal compared to yeah. a lot of the other ones I've read, like Wilson Follett or uh, Jacques mm -hmm. Barzun or some, someone like that. But I, I think what we're both we're both thinking of is Fowler's um, famous article about the Splint Infinitive. Mm. Which is one of the hallmarks of English wit mm. I've ever come across. Where it's like, um, there's four types of people in the English-speaking world when it concerns a split infinitive: um, those who know and care, right? Those who know and those who don't know, and those who don't care. Those who don't know but care very much. Those who know and condemn, and those who know and discriminate. Which is, to me, like wonderful, like that as you said that like splays out the entire uh, spectrum of how you look mm. at that particular issue and it's really to me sort of depressing that people are even still hung up on that you know like i have yes, absolutely and i think you know it's not just you know i've mentioned so i think one of the great things being the group are the retired english teachers in in the states who you know it's us really americans isn't what it? their basic training was and um and are quite shocked that certain things that they've been taught to teach are being questioned in that group. But it, it's not just the US. So again, you know, one of the British posters um, said that he avoided split infinitives when he was writing things for a, a, a minister in a British government yeah. because the guy freaked when he saw them. Um, so it, it, it seems to be this marker of status that's used at times that, you know, educated polite people do not split infinitives don't end sentences with prepositions um even though anyone who understands language knows that the english language knows that that's utter nonsense yeah um but it has taken hold but then you know if you you sort of sometimes i would you know make analogies with 
the history of attitudes to sex where there have been equally silly things that persisted for ages, like you can catch sexually transmitted diseases from public toilet seats and the rest. And no, uh, no amount of scientific evidence could actually um, dissuade people who'd been told that at a young enough age and um, that they were, you know, putting themselves at uh, risk of a terrible infection if they, <laughs> they used <laughs> a public toilet. Yeah. Um, yeah, and I think I think we're seeing it also with um, COVID in vaccinations. That um, oh, well, definitely so. The ability of small parts, uh, often substantial minorities of the population, to be really dumb um, is is really not changed much over history. Um, well, that's the, um, the the problem with uh, prescriptivism is, as I've tried to explain it in that group, um, it's not so much a uh, a set of laws that you memorize. It's more of it's uh, as Wilson Follett said. It tries to to train you to think about language in a way that you're very careful about what you do. Absolutely, and and, and I would agree. You know, I'm a retired design school professor, and a key part of early years of design degrees is um, establishing craft skills. So, in fashion yeah. things like pattern, um, pattern cutting. You know, understanding different fabrics, understanding the history of fashion. These are all parts of foundations and furniture making, again, those traditions. And, you know, everyone in the studio understands what a well-crafted garment's like or what a well-crafted table or chair is like. And I, I think that is where an understanding of language is really important. You need to understand how language functions, the English language functions, to be able to be in control of what you're doing. Yes. Um, but that is not done by following simple rules. So, you know, again, one of the things that seems to come up with, uh, you know, people from the States in the group is that there are eight parts of speech. Well, actually, there are far more. No, than that. And in fact, we're, we're still not sure. You know. <laughs> so people talk of word classes yeah. now and phrase classes. And it, it actually, you know, you get to the point where you give up trying well, to come up with, with parts of speech or word classes. Yeah, it's... Because you just it just proliferates all the time if you you don't stop you know if you don't just draw a line and say well this is a useful analytical device but it's never going to close yeah cuz cuz those uh yeah. when you're when you're talking about parts of speech and that is always yeah. um the most difficult part of any grammar yeah that you're going to read like i read uh i tried to read i'll be honest uh george croom's uh english grammar and the parts of speech in that just like they split so many fine hairs with, yeah. with so many things like uh this is a relative pronoun this is a relative predicate pronoun and it just yeah you have to have to stop at a point and go like yeah. what what is really going on here and it's yeah i mean it's like physics you know they thought there were only three particles in an atom and yeah then, you know, <laughs> it seems to be every time they do an experiment to discover you know some missing particle, some, some new they find out there's three of them <laughs> some new function and yeah I, I understand that like some people specialize in that and mm. and i think uh i can't think uh kate stromper who's yeah. a uh, a really famous uh american uh english language person like she yeah. kind of falls victim to that a lot and that's just something i try to avoid and particularly with phonology i don't know if you've ever tried to read any any phonology texts like the jargon for that is I'm, I'm used to that because um i i used to 
do I used to work as an expert for the European Commission plus I travel a lot as an academic so uh, you know I've got sort of survival vocabularies in most yeah. European languages and an understanding of how sounds are produced is really important um, now the easiest thing is to work with a native so about my late mother-in-law was a French and German teacher, so she taught me how to say tout properly in French to say a French you, yeah. which is really useful because that's also the same as you on loud. Once you've got that sound, you're actually covered for the same sound in German and in Finnish. And she actually physically showed me hmm. what to do in my mouth and describe it. So I think I think that stuff is useful. Um, but I think the difficulty is that if you if you've only got eight parts of speech, you you don't. So what doesn't get covered and doesn't get covered in sentence diagrams are particles. Well, that's. Um, and I think if people understood particles, they'd know that the split infinitive rule was really dumb. Yes. Because a particle is 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 a word that only has meaning in relation to something else. So, um, you know that that two with an infinitive will retain its meaning and function regardless of what you stick in between it and, and the verb. And you know, then then we have bare infinitives with you know like let me be. And uh, let me go. Uh, where the, the the two is, you know, a bare infinitive is one that's lost its two. So, I mean, you know, I I, I was a, a high school teacher for a while. These are things that you can teach in a minute, you know. And I think the fact that when some people are taught English, and it seems to be when it's their native language, um, they're not given the basic apparatus. So I certainly agree with you that part of understanding language. Um, is understanding the mechanisms there, understanding functions, and, and having a grasp of, of concepts and frameworks that let you take sentences apart and let you take paragraphs apart and the rest. Well, would you say um, that there's a, there's like a, um, the fewer parts of speech you have, the more errors there are, right? Like, yeah. the, the more strictly you define what this word is and how it functions in a sentence. Yeah. But the more nuanced you get, the more you can understand how that word doesn't maybe function yeah. the way yeah. it would fit into the like the eight uh, part speech. Yeah. Like for example, one of the most disheartening posts I saw in that the group we're in, where it was somebody tried to correct uh, "move slow" to "move slowly." Yeah. Immediately, I am like, that's just a flat adverb. You know, it, it, not all adverbs have ly. In yeah. fact, a great many of them, and it gets really yeah. tangled. It's all going going back to Fowler. It's all about idiom. It's what is the accepted? You were talking about um, acceptability. What is the accepted yeah. way to do these things generally over the broadest mm -hmm. uh, spectrum? And it, just that so many people would think that slowly needed to be the proper adverb for that. Yeah. And again, they've, they've not been taught morphology. Um, and, and you know, another regular post is this isn't a word. You know, like orientate, which is a back form. Yeah, and that's a um, that's a big uh, tradition with yeah. prescriptivism. Actually, the, yeah. the non-words. <laughs> yeah, but they're all. You know, if you understand English morphology, these are all clearly words because they're yeah. all well formed. Yeah, um, and uh, that's the. So I mean, one of the debates about English is whether it is um, a synthetic language at all, um, and whether it's actually moved quite close to languages like Vietnamese and Japanese um, uh, in that a lot of the work isn't done by inflection anymore. So if you take a, an agglutinative language like Japanese or Finnish um, yes. or Inuit, so there's this classic thing 
um, to use the Inuit's um, old name of uh, Eskimos, that the Eskimos had a, a thousand words for snow. Actually, they've got an infinite number of words for snow because in an agglutinative language, um, you can just keep adding things to the word. Um, and I don't think, you know, I've never seen anyone in Finnish turn around and say, that's not a word. They say, well, <laughs> I, I prefer words not to get that long. There's a competition yeah. in Finland for um, marsh skiing in fancy dress and high heels. And uh, the competition name is just one word. <laughs> the, competition, the competition for marsh skiing in flowery dresses and high heels. Because um, you could do that in Finnish. Um, so, yeah, I think I think... I think the difficulty, so I think naive prescriptivists pick up a rule somehow, they often don't know how, and they just do not have the apparatus, the conceptual apparatus for taking things apart and realizing how it's a bogus rule. Yes. Um, and so, so I think when people get upset with prescriptivism, it's usually, and you know, going right back to uh, Thomas de Quincey's, because the rule was stupid, you know. Yeah. Um, but there's a mark, as I've said already, there, in the late 18th century, there was a market for stupid rules, and there still is. I, I would totally agree. I think I actually yeah. uh, think two uh, two distinctions. Yeah. I don't know if they ever will eventually fade from the language, but they might. I, I hope they do. Yeah. Actually, is um, the who versus whom and less versus yeah. fewer because they really yeah. just do not serve any any function at all other than pedantry and like you said, social status. Yeah. But when, when you, when you look over like, um, I, I was going to wait to get into this, but like the, uh, the great Webster's third, mm -hmm. uh, dictionary controversy, one of the, uh, the more superficial and short lived controversies though, was about ain't. And when, when you're speaking of people who have learned these rules,